Welcome to Leading Lights. You are about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. Hello again. So we're looking at the parables of Jesus. These are amazing stories that are so simple on the face of them, but they hold so much truth. There was a day when Jesus told a batch of parables. He started with the parable of the sower about a farmer throwing seed onto four types of soil. And we've seen how the soil is our hearts, my individual heart. The seed is the word of God. Jesus is the sower. And my heart can be in four different conditions. But then he went on on that same day to speak about more seed parables, about a mustard tree that grew huge. Um, there was another one about a seed that grew overnight, but it took time to grow. Uh, there were different parables about a dragnet bringing in fish and a man who found treasure hidden in a field. And I just want to expand on these first set of parables a little bit today and look at two topics. Number one, how does the Christian deal with evil? in the world and in ourselves. How do we deal with evil and view it and relate to it? That's the first one. And the second one is how do we deal with the big wide world out there? And these are really two in the same thing because we can withdraw within ourselves. And so in the middle ages, between the, the years of about 500 AD to about 1000 or 1500 AD, People withdrew into monasteries, into little islands. Um, my family and I visited a Scottish island um, called Iona, where, where a, a religious man just withdrew to himself and he prayed all day. And that is one option where Christians think we must withdraw, we must hide, we must separate ourselves and not interact with evil or the world. Or there is another extreme where we go full on out into the world and almost allow ourselves to become like the world so that we're indistinguishable from the world. But somewhere in the middle of that, there is a, a correct way for us as Christians to go. And this is important because I've got a news flash for you. We live in an evil world and evil is never going to go away. And Jesus said in, in John chapter 17, he's praying to his father. He says, Lord, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. In other words, he was saying, we, we're going to stay in this evil world. But then the very next verse, he says, but they are not of this world. And it's a bit like a ship in a huge body of water. The ship is designed to be in the water. In fact, the more water it, there is, the better the ship can sail. However, if the water gets into the ship, then the ship's purpose is defeated and the ship will sink. And you, my dear Christian and me, we are made to be in this world, which is surrounded by evil and evil people, but we're not to allow the world to get into us. And so Jesus told some parables. You may be surprised that these parables relate to these very real issues. You may have read the parables and seen them as a surface story and thought that's an interesting, nice story. But there's always a hidden meaning and a surprising meaning. And the surprising meaning in the ones we're going to look at today about the world and evil is that God is good, but he allows evil to continue for a reason. And that is a surprise to many people. I would say that the biggest the biggest argument that non-believers have 
against Christianity or against any religion. They say, if there is a God and if he's good, why is there evil? Because if there's still evil, then maybe he's not really good or maybe he's not really God. Maybe he's not in control of anything. And this is so helpful for us to read these parables. So Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares or weeds among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? In other words, to rip up the, the weeds, to, to get rid of the weeds. And he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot or damage the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. And then he explained the parable a few verses later. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the whole world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Uh, the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. And then he told another parable straight after that. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So let me try and firstly just link these parables a little bit together. Jesus first told the sower, the four soils, and he said in Mark chapter 4 to the disciples, if you can't understand this parable, you won't be able to understand all the parables. The sower is a very crucial, the most important parable. And in that parable, there is also a field, there are soils, there is also seed, which is the word of God, and there are also weeds or tares growing up but it's in the third soil. And in the parable of the sower, the word of God comes into an individual's heart, but there are other seeds, other ideas, other than the word of God, evil thoughts and ideas and concepts growing up. And for me as an individual, so the first truth from the parable of the sower is that for me as an individual, when I hear the word of God, it has the potential to produce great life and good and God's miracle power in me. But I must root out or identify the evil beliefs, the evil seeds that are in my heart and root them out. And God gives us the power to do that. The seed, the word of God comes with added power to get rid of wrong ideas as well. But I need to cooperate with God. I need to say, Lord, I'm repenting of that belief that whatever it is, that I'll always be poor, that I'm less than everyone else, that I am a, a sinner, that I'm worse than other Christians. What All these other wrong beliefs that we've grown up thinking, maybe it's greed, maybe you think money is the main thing in life or whatever it is. We've got to uproot those seeds so that the word of God can prosper. So the first application is for my own life. I must allow the good seed of God's word to grow and uproot wrong ideas and beliefs that I have believed. And that's a lifelong challenge, my friend. 
2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 onwards says that we wrestle against these arguments and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And we take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And that is our fight for the rest of our lives to allow God's word to uproot and overthrow these wrong ideas. So first application in my own heart, the seed must grow and the evil must be dealt with. And God is very patient. He doesn't um, expect us to be perfect immediately. As time goes on, every time he speaks to us, there's an opportunity for us to uproot a wrong seed. And praise God, he's with us all the way through that process to the end of our lives. And he doesn't reject us just because there's some wrong seed. But the more we uproot those wrong ideas, the more fruit will grow. Then you move on to the parable of the wheat and the tares, and suddenly... It's different because the seeds and the plants are people, individual people. It's no longer one person's heart with four different soils. Now, what's happened is the person who's believed in God's word and allowed it to grow in their lives and uprooted the evil has become a son of the kingdom. Other people have rejected God and they are sons of the evil one. Now, you might say to me, is God not patient? How can he decide straight away that someone's a son of the evil one or a son of the kingdom when maybe later they'll give their lives to the Lord? And that's the beauty of this parable is we see these two time scales at work here. The, the servants said, why is there evil in the field, in the world? And they were blaming the farmer. They said, if you're a good God, if you're a good farmer, why did you allow evil to come up? And he says, I, an enemy has done this. I'm allowing free will. I'm allowing enemies in my world. And then they said, well, let's go and get rid of them. And he said, we're going to wait because God is patient and he wants weeds to become wheat. But then he said to the servants and to us as Christians, don't try and judge them. Don't try and rip them out because judgment will come later. We're in a period of grace at the moment where God is trying to win the world back. And judgment will be one day at the end of time. I praise God that he's not judging us right now. You know, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Just one sin separates us from God, and that's enough to cut us off from life forever. But God doesn't judge us. He's so patient, the Bible says, not willing that any should perish. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. But a time will come at the end of time when free will is ended, and God says, now is the time for judgment. Because judgment is overriding free will. Judging is saying, I'm not allowing you to choose. I'm going to decide on what happens to you. And the servants and many of us Christians would love for God to judge now. We would love for God to get involved and to punish evildoers and to stop evil people from doing evil things. And so on many forums on the Internet, you can see non-believers saying, well, why doesn't God stop the evil? Why does he allow the evil? And the reason given in this parable is the farmer says, if I'm going to uproot the weeds, I might and I will have to uproot the wheat at the same time. God would have to punish everything and he would have to put an end to free will. And he's patiently waiting so that more and more people can come in to know him. And so if I say, God, why didn't you stop that thief breaking into my house and stealing my 
goods. He would say, well, if I had to stop that, I would have to stop free will. I, I would have to cease free will and I would have to stop you having free will, Greg. And so he says, you're living in this time when the two are growing up together. But he's given us, the individual, the ability to allow his word to get in, to produce fruit, to overcome the weeds in our own lives. But we're living in a world where there are the two going together. He, he basically said to them, don't judge. There is a judgment coming. They said, we want to go and we want to decide who's a wheat and who's a weed. And we want to pull them out. And he said, no, no, you can't judge. You can judge for your own heart. What are the weeds and the wheat, the ideas in your own heart? But when it comes to other people, let me make this clear. For your own life, the soil is your heart. And you can say, Lord, what have I believed that's not right? What have I led into my life that's not right? And you can remove it. But when you look at somebody else's life, you don't have x-ray vision to look into their hearts. You don't know. They may look like a weed, but you don't know if they'll become a weed. You don't know the motives. You don't know the reasons. You don't know what's going on. How many times in my life, and I'm sure in yours, have we thought somebody was doing something wrong and later we realized, oh, I didn't understand the full, the full circumstances. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul was being judged by the Corinthians. And he says, it's a very small thing for me to be judged by you. And then he says to them, don't judge before the appointed time. In other words, the end of time when God judges, when God will judge the secret things of the heart. And he says, don't go beyond what is written. Let me just read it to you in 1 Corinthians 4. He says in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will br both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. He says, you can't see inside someone's heart. You don't know the motives. Only God does. And he goes on to say, um, I've written these things so that you may learn not to think beyond what is written. In other words, he's saying, don't go beyond what you can plainly see. Another way of saying this is to say, don't read between the lines. Don't go beyond what is written. You know, sometimes you'd get a letter from someone or a text or an email, and it's written plainly, the words. Um, I had a circumstance a, a while ago where um, I, I said to my wife by text, what should we do today or later? And she said, what were you thinking? Now, the words are fairly plain. What were you thinking? But I could try and read between the words, between the lines. And I could put my own guesswork into what she was saying and say, she was saying, what were you thinking, you idiot? Or she might have been saying, what were you thinking? I was thinking this or just plainly simply saying, what, what are your ideas? But I could try and read between, I could go beyond what is written. And he says, when you're judging other people, don't go beyond what you can plainly see, what they say, what they do. Don't try and guess what's in their heart until the day of judgment comes. And so Jesus was saying to his disciples, there's going to be evil in this world, but you have to just decide not to judge what's in their hearts, but only judge your own heart. We said last week that we are told to discern, but not to judge. And they're, they're two different Greek words. 
dokimazo is is to discern or to examine with not a judgmental uh, prideful point of view but just to say i want what's good for me whereas krino and all the different words that are linked to it are about judging and condemning and thinking you're better than someone in romans 14 he he says paul says don't judge someone because they have another master he says who are you to judge another master's servant I was in a shop recently and I was looking on the shelves and somebody thought I worked in that shop and they came and they asked me some questions and where they could find something and I had to say to them politely I don't work here I I'm, I, I don't work for you I don't work for the shop I, I don't know I can't help you you don't have the relationship with me that you think you have I'm just like you I'm just another customer and in Romans 14 he says who are you to judge another master's servant you are thinking like you have a right like an employee or a boss or somebody higher than them to judge what's going on in their life their actions their thoughts their motives he says they're going to answer to God one day just as you are you're both on the same level you're both customers not not one above the other and so this parable is talking about when we're relating to evil we root it out of our own hearts but we don't judge others we don't try and control others we don't ask God to control other people you know God has given free will for a reason it's a beautiful thing because it enables us to have a relationship with him and to respond to him freely and if he were to suspend that even for a minute by controlling someone by forcing someone to do something by stopping an evil person from doing something he would break the whole system that he set up which will allow people to choose him and he would have to uproot all of us the, the wheat and the weeds so i hope that's helpful to you but now how do we relate to the world he says in the next parable again the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field now the field is the world we've already seen that in the previous parable jesus said the field is the world and what he said is there's a treasure hidden in the world and jesus gave his life gave all that he had to buy the whole field the whole world just to get the treasure that's in it and this then leads us on to a whole series of other parables that are just so beautiful um, he goes on in the next verses to say again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking a beautiful pearl or beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it and that's to say that yes he's looking for treasure in the field and yes he's bought the whole world to get the treasure but you are a precious pearl of great price each individual person each one of us is worth him dying for and giving everything he had for one pearl it's not just a, a generic treasure it's one pearl it's you you are precious to him and so we see that even though in the world there are these wheat and these weeds and and we got to be careful about our own hearts and not judging others there is a treasure in this field and God's heart is to find the treasure and then Jesus told these other parables he told about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son in Matthew 18 and in Luke 
chapter 15. He tells these three parables. I'm not going to read them for you now. But um, the lost sheep, he says, a man had a hundred sheep and one of them went astray. He will leave the 99 and he will go and find that one lost sheep and there's rejoicing. And then in Luke, he tells about the sheep again. But then he tells about a lady who had 10 coins and she um, turned on the light to find the one coin that she'd been missing. And, and she rejoiced with her neighbors when she found the one coin, the one missing one. And then the lost son, a man had two sons. One of them stayed with him. The other one went away and lived a prodigal life. And when the prodigal came back, they had a huge rejoicing party. But the son who had stayed had misunderstood and he thought he had to earn his place. And so he was angry that the, the prodigal son had been forgiven. And these are, are parables that show us our relationship to the world. We are in the world. But we're not of the world. And yet God says there's a treasure in the world. Let me put it this way. You, my friend, are a treasure. Jesus died just for you. If you were the only person in the world, he would have died for you to buy the whole field, the whole world to gain you back, to win you back. But then we are supposed to have that same heart where we say, Lord, it's not just about me and my other saved friends and, and now I'm just in a little separate group. No, I've got to worry about the lost one out there. I've got to go out onto the rocky mountains and the bad weather to find that lost sheep. I've got to search, turn the light on, shine the light, call in for help to find the lost coin. I've got to find that lost son who was with the father, but now he's gone away and he needs to come back. Just a word, a brief word about this. Matthew 18 gives us the context of these three parables about the lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Luke expands on the parables, and Matthew 18 only tells us the parable of the lost sheep. But the context in Matthew 18 of these lost parables is he was talking about children. It says, at that time, the disciples came and saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child and set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, whoever in verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck. He says these little ones in verse 10. Uh, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father in heaven. So he's saying little children are in heaven. They believe in God. They have angels. Children are going to heaven because they haven't reached an age where they are no longer innocent. He says children become like children. Children are in heaven. The, the hundred sheep who were together are the children. Then he tells the parable. Uh, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99, go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, verse 14, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The idea that we have had wrongly is that the, the hundred or the 99 are churchgoers. And there's one out there. But actually, he's saying it's it's humanity. It's children are the, the hundred. And as they go astray, every one of us, 
he, he says, the things that cause offense must come, but woe to the man through whom offense has come. Every child crosses over and becomes a, a, a person who needs saving after a certain age. I don't know what that age is. And then they're one of the lost sheep and we must try and bring them back. It's not saying the church is the 99. It's saying children were saved and then they go and now we have to bring them back to the Father. And it's all humanity. All humanity needs to be reached. And so he's giving us this, this perspective on the world that says the world is a field that God has bought. There is treasure in there and we must be looking for that treasure, not hiding ourselves in a little sanctified group who only want to deal with each other. We must be looking out. He goes on in Matthew 13 to tell the parable of the dragnet. A man put out a net and brought in fish. We've got to be fishing for men. Later on in Matthew 22, he tells the parable of the wedding banquet where he says a man had a wedding banquet for his son. He invited people and many of them gave excuses and didn't want to come. And so he sent out his servants onto the highways and said, whoever wants to come, whoever wants to come, come into this wedding. We are supposed to be looking, looking, looking out for the wedding banquet. And I just want to close and say to you, that we, dear friends, are supposed to be reaching out. You may say, where do I stand with all this? First of all, say, Lord, is there anything in my heart where weeds and wheat have grown up in my own heart? Let me uproot them. Secondly, have I maybe judged evil or allowed myself to think uh, God must stop other evil people and, and so I haven't interacted well with other people and I've been judgmental? But then thirdly, Am I reaching out to the world? Am I loving them? Am I with them? Am I going out into the highways, into the mountains to find the lost ones and to bring them in? And if we get that right, then this parable and these parables just become so meaningful. They become a guide for our whole lives. They become an important way that we should live our lives every single day. I'm thinking, don't let evil in. Don't judge other people. Bring in those treasures that are out there. We love you. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.